This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Virtually every sentence of the letter relates to one of those statements in the first paragraph. And in chapter 5, Paul identifies younger widows who had already followed after Satan, were going about from house to house, and that's where the churches met, saying things they ought not. So it would make sense for Paul in that situation to limit teaching by women. Well, But I began to look at other passages, and I found at point after point, I had really misunderstood what Paul was saying. Well, finally, uh, 36 years later, I came out with my book, Man and Woman, One in Christ, and in it, I advocate the very position I was trying to argue against. Scripture forced me to change. But even after I'd accepted the equal standing of men and women in terms of church leadership, I was still very keen that my wife, in her marriage vows, would agree to submit to my authority. I realize now I didn't have solid biblical grounds for that either. Women and gender studies at a Christian university matter because... Women matter to God because he created man and woman equally in his image. Equally gave them the creation blessing. Equally gave them dominion over the earth. Yet, in a 2005 study here at Whitworth, female students reported that they were more often silenced, intimidated, or felt less competent than the men in, in the classroom, regardless of the major or the GPA. A 2007 survey of Whitworth freshmen showed that female students were less intellectually confident than their male peers. 79% of the male students, but only 58% of the female students regarded themselves above average in comparison with average people their age in intellectual self-confidence, even though the women on average had consistently higher GPAs in high school and university. National research shows that white males are more likely to receive praise and criticism more than females or people of color. Women tend to receive neutral feedback. Hinnenkamp said, it's okay for a male to be outspoken about his opinion. When a woman does, she may have other attributes associated with it. Consequently, Women tend to censor themselves in class. John Yoder said, the most striking theme voiced by virtually all the women was the fact that they feared saying what they thought. 
especially about matters of gender, including sexual harassment. Gender sometimes affects whom faculty mentor. Faculty mentors here don't foreclose on the options, but listen to and care for each student. And students, if you have a passion, find a mentor who can enrich you. According to the 2007 Whitworth Gender Subcommittee, students perceive female faculty as less competent than male faculty. Terry McGonigal, McGonigal reports, I've heard some of the female faculty say they've felt silenced or dismissed in the classroom. Math professor Susan Mabry said, sometimes male students have not treated her with respect. Jeannie Whitehouse said, I've observed students eviscerate a female faculty member on minor issues, and I've observed male faculty with the exact same issues get a much more gentle response. Julia Strong said, I've had students tell me that they value faculty stating facts when the faculty are male. And I've had the same students say, if I, if I state something as a fact, I need to prove it to them. Many men at Whitworth have no sense of how deeply these issues affect women. How does it feel when someone uses the Bible to limit your freedom or to undermine your goals? Because Whitworth is a Christian university, we have an obligation to love each other and to search deeply to understand Scripture. In, in a 2005 Whitworth study, it was found that there is significant resistance to females in ministry. One student, Kimmy Stokesbury, said, I've always dreamed of being ordained, but there seems to be a constant attitude that I'm not respectable because I'm female and often less worthy than my male counterparts. Terry McGonigal said, some students at Whitworth do not think women should be in ministry, often stemming from passages in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. One Whitworth woman wrote, I don't understand why God would set up the world with some people less valuable, less equal than others less critical, but still ambivalent, another wrote, there's just as much evidence scripturally to say women's ministry is okay as evidence that it's not okay. I can personally appreciate the problems because I have been part of the problem. Uh, to begin with, I grew up in a church where there were only male pastors and elders. Uh, have some of you grown up in churches with, with only pastors, male pastors and elders? Yeah, a bunch of you. Your experiences can carry over into the classroom with subconscious expectations that people in authority will be male and, and have male attributes. Unless you become aware 
of your unconscious expectations and challenge them from Scripture, you can carry them over into your profession and into your marriage to your detriment. Since the misunderstanding of Scripture is a a key reason for gender conflict here at Whitworth, and because this is the aspect of gender studies at which I am best qualified to, to speak, this evening we will examine together the 12 most commonly alleged biblical reasons for excluding women from leadership in the church and in the home. Reason one alleges the Bible teaches male headship. In English, the man is the head of woman and the husband is the head of his wife convey that the man has authority over woman. Their context in Scripture, however, explain that they mean, respectively, the man Adam is the source of woman and a husband is a source of love and nourishment for his wife. In Greek, the word for head was very rarely associated with leadership. The most extensive Greek dictionary lists 48 English equivalents for the word. None of them mean leader, authority, or anything related to them. Nearly all secular Greek dictionaries do not give even one example of head meaning authority. Many Greek dictionaries, however, list source as a meaning for head. The point of Paul's head-body metaphors with Christ as the head of the church is that Christ is, is not that Christ is the authority of the church, though of course he is the authority, but Paul's point in these metaphors is that Christ is the source of life and nourishment for the church. For instance, Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body of the church, who is the origin or the source of the body's life. Both Colossians 2.19 and Ephesians 4.15-16 state, the head from whom the body grows, the source of its growth. The standard Septuagint Greek Old Testament almost always translates the Hebrew word for head with the Greek word for head. But, of the 171 times the Hebrew word for head means leader, they use the Greek word for head only once, clearly as a metaphor for leader. This is in spite of the tent strong tendency of Greek words in the Septuagint to extend their range of meanings in an un-Greek way after the Hebrew word they render. This proves that the secular Greek dictionaries are correct, that leader was not an established meaning for head at the time Paul was writing. If head naturally conveyed leader in Greek, like it does in English, there would have been far more than one. Contrast the New American Standard Bible. It translates 115 of those head, because in English, 
head, meaning leader, is so common, like the head of the company. Paul never clearly teaches male headship, but he clearly teaches again and again leadership in the church and the home by women. Seven of the ten people Paul names as colleagues in ministry in Romans 16 are women. Phoebe, deacon of the church of Cancrea, and leader of many, including myself. Junia, outstanding among the apostles. Prisca, my fellow worker in Christ Jesus. Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis worked hard in the Lord. Chrysostom, the Archbishop of Constantinople in the early 300s, wrote, How can it be that yet another woman is honored and proclaimed victorious? We are put to shame yet again. Or rather, it is an honor to have such women among us. Though we are put to shame in that we are left so far behind them. Mary worked hard among them because along with teaching, she performed other ministries besides. The women of those days were more spirited than lions, sharing with the apostles their labors for the gospel's sake. They were in no way hindered by their sex from following the path of virtue. And this is only to be expected, for in Christ Jesus there is neither male nor female. Of Junia, he wrote, even to be an apostle is great. But to be prominent among them, consider how wonderful a song of honor this is, how great the wisdom of this woman that she was even deemed worthy of the apostle's title. Bishop Theodoret of Cyrus identified Junia as a woman, quote, of note, not only among the pupils, but among the teachers, and not only among the ordinary teachers, but among the apostles. Why is this important? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and 31, quote, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Since the New Testament and church fathers affirm women as apostle, prophet, and teacher, then we must conclude that women are not excluded from the highest offices in the church. Reason number two. Ephesians 5 teaches, wives submit to your husbands. Well, actually, Ephesians 5 teaches all believers to submit one to another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Jerome, Clement of Alexandria, and Origen confirm that the wife's submission is one facet of mutual submission. Christ is the model for all believers in this very chapter and the preceding chapter. Paul defines what he means by head in 523 by equating it with Savior through emphatic apposition. Christ, head of the church, he, Savior of the body. What does Christ do as Savior? Paul explains, he gives himself for the church, loves, nourishes, and cherishes the church. These are exactly 
what Paul calls husbands to do to their wives as head. He doesn't call them to have authority over their wives. Paul also treats husbands and wives equally in relation to their children in the next chapter and tells wives to, quote, rule their homes, literally, be house despots in 1 Timothy 5. If this isn't leadership in the home, what is? Paul's most detailed treatment of marriage, 1 Corinthians 7, identifies exactly the same rights and responsibilities for wives and husbands regarding 12 different issues about marriage, both natural and spiritual. In each, he addresses men and women as equals. His wording is symmetrically balanced to emphasize this equality. Paul affirms that husband and wife mutually possess each other. They have mutual conjugal rights. Paul even writes, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. They have mutual sexual obligations. He tells both not to divorce. Both set apart the other and their children with the special privilege of experience the gospel of experiencing the gospel lived out. Both have freedom to remarry if deserted. Both have a potentially saving influence on the other. Both have a choice in marriage. Both should please the other and Christ. Richard Hayes correctly observes how revolutionary this was. Paul offers a paradigm-shattering vision of marriage as a relationship in which the partners are bonded together in submission to one another. Reason 3. 1 Timothy 2.12 prohibits women from teaching or having authority over men. A careful analysis of 1 Timothy 2.12 shows that this verse simply prohibits women in first century Ephesus during a crisis of false teaching from seizing authority to teach men. It does not prohibit women from teaching men as long as they have recognized teaching authority, like Priscilla did. I, I want to repeat this because it's very important. 1 Timothy 2.12 simply prohibits women in first century Ephesus during a crisis in false teaching from seizing authority to teach men. It does not prohibit women from teaching men as long as they have recognized teaching authority like Priscilla did. The old NIV reads, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. This translation is doubtful for four reasons. First, the key Greek verb here is best translated to assume authority one does not rightfully have. Its first documented occurrence, clearly meaning exercise authority, is three centuries after Paul. <clears throat> if it always means have authority, then Chrysostom wrote, do not have authority over your wife. In Paul's day, it could mean either to dominate or more commonly, to assume authority. And every time it means assume authority, the authority 
is seized, not rightfully held. Chrysostom states, I am not permitting a woman to assume authority over a man. Just why? Because Eve assumed authority once wickedly. The King James Version, to usurp authority, reflects this understanding. The Standard New Testament Dictionary defines it, quote, to assume a stance of independent authority. In contrast, every clear reference to exercise authority in the New Testament is based on a completely different word. The NIV 2011 correctly translates it to assume authority. Even Baldwin's study of this word in the major complementarian book on this passage does not include to exercise authority or to have authority in the range of meanings it carried in Paul's day. Second, Paul typically uses the conjunction in this this verse to join two elements to convey a single idea. In this case, it joins to teach and to assume authority. Consequently, Paul does not prohibit two things, teaching and seizing authority over man. He prohibits one thing, seizing authority to teach men, just as Origen explained it. Origen, in this context, affirms many women teachers with proper authority, including Priscilla, Maximilla, the four daughters of Philip, Deborah, Miriam, Hulda, and Anna. Did Paul silence only women? No, chapter 1 similarly silenced false teachers who had seized authority to teach. Third, the translation, I do not permit, is doubtful because the verb Paul chose normally refers to something limited in time, not permanent. Furthermore, its grammatical form is rarely used for permanent prohibitions, but usually focuses on a presently ongoing permission or prohibition, so is best translated, I am not permitting. Fourth, if this verse is a permanent prohibition of women teaching or having authority over men, it contradicts the Bible's affirmations of women teaching. Acts 18.26 states that Priscilla explained to the eloquent preacher Apollos the way of God more accurately. Paul lists Priscilla's name before her husband's, contrary to Greek convention, giving her prominence in explaining the way of God more accurately. She did this in the very city this restriction on teaching addresses and was probably there when Paul wrote 1 Timothy, since Paul greets her in 2 Timothy. Phoebe must have taught adult men, since she delivered Romans as Paul's emissary, and so naturally answered the Romans' questions about it. Acts 21 states, Philip had four daughters who prophesied. Elsewhere, Paul encouraged women to teach. 1 Corinthians 11.5 gives rules for, quote, 
every woman who prays or prophesies. 1 Corinthians 14 states four times, I would like every one of you to prophesy. 14.26 states, whenever you come together, each one has a teaching. Likewise, Colossians 3.16 encourages all believers, teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Paul commands older women in Titus 2.3 to be teachers of what is excellent. Paul's guide for Christian discipleship states, entrust to reliable people who will be qualified to teach others. Paul writes that Lois and Eunice taught Timothy. He affirms your faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. From infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. Hebrew states, Brothers and sisters, by this time, you ought to be teachers. God revealed key passages of Scripture through women. The very first human prophecy in the New Testament was when Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, the mother of my Lord. The second is Mary's Magnificat, which is also the first Christian exposition of Scripture. All these passages show the error of interpreting 1 Timothy 2.12 as a permanent prohibition against women teaching. Reason 4. The creation order establishes man's priority over women. God created the plants and animals before man, yet to whom did God give dominion? Was it not the one created later? In fact, the leadership of the one born later is a major Old Testament theme. Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Judah over his older brothers, Moses over Aaron, David over his seven older brothers, Solomon over his nine older brothers, and many more examples. Genesis teaches that God created man and woman equally in his image, and that both men and women together have dominion over the earth. Reason 5. God calls woman man's helper in Genesis 2, so women must be subordinate to men. Actually, what God says is, I will make a strength corresponding to him. The first word of this expression, sometimes translated helper, means strength, savior, or rescuer. Sixteen times it describes God as the rescuer of his people in need, their strength or power. The remaining three times describe a military protector. It never implies subordination. It means literally a strength as in front of him, namely, a strength corresponding to him. Reason six. Man ought to rule over woman, since God decreed he will rule over you, in Genesis 3.16. This is God's statement of what will result from the fall. Like every other result of the fall, 
This is something new, not in the original creation. Even leading complementarian scholars agree that this is not a prescription of what should be. They fail to acknowledge, however, that the word used here is the most general positive word for rule. Both Hebrew dictionaries list every occurrence in the Hebrew scriptures, and they do not list a single negative meaning for this word. The word is used for God's rule. Since man's ruling over woman is a result of the fall, man must not have ruled over woman before the fall. Furthermore, Christ, the promised seed of the woman, has overcome the fall. New creatures freed by Christ should not foster any of the tragic consequences of the fall, including man's ruling over women. Reason number seven, the Old Testament pattern of male leadership shows that God approves only male leaders. The Old Testament describes many women in leadership with God's blessing. It never states that being female should disqualify them. The prophetess, prophetess Miriam is sent by God to lead Israel. Deborah is one of the judges whom the Lord raised up and who saved Israel from the hands of their enemies. She was a prophetess and the highest leader in Israel in her day. She, a wife and mother, had authority to command Israel's military leader, Barak, go, and he went. They worked together well with shared authority. He as military commander, and she as commander-in-chief. Queen Esther had sufficient influence to save her people from imminent genocide. She, along with Mordecai, quote, wrote with full authority, and Esther's decree confirmed these regulations. The Bible praises the Queen of Sheba and the Queen of Chaldea. You know, the Hebrew word for queen is just the word king with the feminine ending, melech, melechah. And the Bible only praises and never criticizes only three people with this title, the three women just cited. Although Queens Jezebel and Athaliah were wicked, like most of Israel's kings, the Bible does not criticize them or any other woman on the grounds that women should not have authority over a man. Priests consulted the prophetess Huldah on finding the book of the law. They obeyed her. This sparked what is probably the greatest revival in all of Israel's history. Moses said, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Joel predicted a greater role for women. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days. Reason number eight. In the Old Testament, God approves only male priests. The most obvious reason is for this 
is the association of priestesses in pagan religions with prostitution, which Deuteronomy 23 prohibits. Yet God commanded Moses to call all the children of Israel to be, quote, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in Exodus 19. Isaiah 61 predicts the future when all God's people will be called priests of the Lord, you will be named ministers of our God. Reason number nine, there were no women apostles, so there should be no women in church leadership. Jesus didn't appoint any Gentiles as apostles. Does that mean no Gentiles can be in church leadership? He didn't appoint any slaves. Does that mean no slaves can be in leadership? Jesus' appointment of the 12 Jewish men paralleled the 12 tribes of Israel and reinforced the symbolism of the church as the new Israel. Jesus must not have wanted only male disciples because he encouraged women as disciples. When Mary sat at the Lord's feet, the position and posture of a disciple, Jesus affirms her, Mary has chosen the better part and it will not be taken from her. Furthermore, Jesus did not limit the proclamation of the gospel to men. Mary Magdalene was the first person the resurrected Christ sought out and commissioned. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. She went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Furthermore, Paul identifies Junia as outstanding among the apostles. This group included James and Paul, who were both more influential than any of the twelve. Therefore, Jesus' choice of the twelve male apostles clearly does not exclude women from leadership in the church. Reason number ten. Women must not be elders, overseers, or pastors of local churches because the Bible only identifies men, never women, in these roles. In fact, however, apart from Christ, the New Testament does not name anyone, man or woman, as an overseer or pastor. The Bible does give John and Peter special titles that include the word elder to highlight their special status as apostolic eyewitnesses. These titles do not identify them as having a local church office. The only New Testament person named with an explicit title of local church leadership is not a man at all, but a woman, Phoebe, deacon of the Church of Cancria, in Romans 16.1. The same title, deacon, was used for pagan religious office and could apply to women. This is not the Greek word for deaconess. Cranfield argues it's virtually certain that Phoebe is being described here as a or possibly the deacon of the church. Calvin writes, she had a, quote, public office in the church. 
Paul encourages all believers to desire the office of overseer by stating, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. The subject of both Paul's lists of qualifications for overseers and elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus uh, 1 is anyone. There's not a single masculine pronoun or any other limitation to men in either list, contrary to most English translations. Some think that man of one woman in 1 Timothy 3 uh, excludes women. But even prominent complementarians like Doug Moo and Thomas Schreiner acknowledge this phrase does not exclude women. It is, it is a requirement that overseers be monogamous, whether men or women, as Gordon Hugenberger has shown. And Jesus' interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 and Mark 10 confirms. It's common throughout the Bible for prohibitions addressing men also to apply to women. For example, do not covet your neighbor's wife also applies to wives coveting the neighbor's husband. Paul's point is not that overseers must be married. Paul, after all, encourages single believers not to marry, but to be devoted to the Lord in 1 Corinthians 7. Furthermore, to demand that overseers be married would exclude James, it would exclude Jesus and Paul, and virtually all Catholic priests, as well as monastics, both men and women. One should not isolate a single word, man, from an idiomatic phrase, man of one woman, and elevate that single word to a status as a separate universal requirement. It's like taking household out of ruling children and their own households well, and insisting that only slave owners could be overseers. Furthermore, since Phoebe was a deacon, and qualifications are listed for women under the deacons, man of one woman in the very next verse of this section must not exclude women. Reason 11. 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35 commands three times that women be silent in the churches. This is the only this is the only passage in the Bible that silences women. But there is compelling evidence that these verses were not in Paul's original letter, but were added in the margin of the letter. Enough evidence that Joseph Fitzmaier writes, quote, the majority of commentators today regard verses 34 to 5 as a later edition. Kim Heinz Eitzen affirms this of, quote, nearly all scholars now. The following uh, may appear challenging as your first introduction to the analysis of Greek manuscripts, but the logic is straightforward. So listen carefully, and I think you'll get it. You can download it later. Manuscript evidence makes a strong case that these two verses were originally written in the margin. The oldest Bible 
surviving in Greek, marks the silencing of women as a later addition. The fundamental principle for determining the original text of Scripture is known as Bengal's first principle. It states, the text that best explains the emergence of all other texts is most likely original. I'll repeat that. The text that explains the emergence of all the other texts is most likely original. These verses follow verse 40 in all Western Greek manuscripts. But in other manuscripts, they follow verse 33. There are only three logical possibilities for their original location. After verse 33, after verse 40, or in the margin. There is not a single passage of comparable length in any manuscript of Paul's letters that has been moved this far without an obvious reason. And no such reason has ever been identified. The transposition of this text from the position either after verse 33 or 40 to the other is inexplicable based on scribal convention. However, as Ulrich Schmidt has shown, it was scribal custom to write omitted text in the margin and for scribes to copy text found in the margin into the body text, just like any secretary retyping an edited letter will move marginal notes into the body of the letter. Common sense demands that something customary is more likely to occur than something so extraordinary that no other instance is known. Thus, verses 34 to 35 must have originally been added in the margin. Copyists inserted it either after verse 33 or 40, the former giving rise to its traditional location, the latter giving rise to the Western reading. The meaning of marginal text is not constrained by its context, so we cannot know if the text in the margin is something Paul affirms or the false prophecy Paul decries in the adjacent text. A typical papyrus margin does not have enough room for this much text in Paul's large handwriting. One can only conjecture who wrote it in the margin, why and when. Its origin as marginal text is the only natural explanation of the manuscript evidence. This is a unique case. It does not undermine the reliability or suggest the marginal status of any other passage of Scripture. If Paul authorized his secretary to write it in the margin, it would probably be to identify the content of the false prophecy implied in the following statement, quote, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him know that what I write to you 
is the Lord's command. To interpret this prohibition of women speaking in church as Paul's command would contradict Paul's affirmations throughout this chapter that all may teach and prophesy, and his affirmations of women prophesying in chapter 11. It would also contradict Psalm 68:11, which states the Lord announced the word, the women proclaiming it are a great company. Finally, reason 12. Men and women have separate roles in the church. Not only does scripture nowhere ex clearly exclude women from leadership roles over men in the church, Paul explicitly expresses the equal standing of male and female in Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.11 states, However, neither is woman separate from man, nor is man separate from woman in the Lord. You may have read a, read a translation that says independent, but standard Greek dictionaries do not support the translation independent regarding persons. Paul states that women and men are not separate in the context of affirming that women, like men, may pray and prophesy, leading worship in the church. Therefore, Paul's denial that women are separate from men in the Lord must apply to women in church leadership. Paul introduces this statement with the word that in Greek highlights his point of central concern. Therefore, Paul is stating as a principle of central concern regarding public worship that there is no gender-based separation in church leadership. Galatians 2-3 also explicitly affirms this fundamental principle. When Peter withdrew from table fellowship with the Gentiles in Galatia, Paul opposed him to his face for not acting in line with the gospel. In defending this denunciation of Paul's unequal treatment, Paul asserts the principle of the equal standing of Jew and Greek in Christ, and expands it to include slave and free and male and female in Galatians 3.28. Therefore, this verse in context teaches that any exclusion of Gentiles, slaves, or women as a class from full participation in the church is contrary to the gospel. This verse is a radical call to a new social interaction based on equality in the body of Christ, the church. It states that in Christ, there is no male-female division. Let's recap what the Bible says about these 12 points. Number one, men and women should share leadership. Leadership is not exclusively male. Number two, Men and women should submit to one another in the church and in marriage. Number three, women may teach in the church. Number four, men and women share dominion in creation. Number five, woman is a strength corresponding to man, not his subordinate. Number six, 
Male rule is a result of the fall. Number seven, the Old Testament approves women in leadership. Number eight, the biblical ideal is that all believers should be priests and should prophesy. Number nine, there were women leaders in the apostolic church. Number 10, the Bible does not exclude women from local church offices. In fact, the only person the Bible explicitly names with the title of a local church office is Phoebe. Number 11, the, the Bible encourages women to speak, even prophesy in the church. And number 12, the Bible teaches that exclusion of women from leadership roles is contrary to the gospel. The problem with these 12 allegedly biblical reasons for exclusively male leadership is not just that none of the text to which they appeal actually teach that women should not exercise authority over men in the church. Their crucial problem is that so many foundational principles <clears throat> of the Bible directly oppose such an exclusion of women, including each of the following 17 theological axioms from Paul that male and women are equally created in God's image, given dominion over the earth, <clears throat> given the creation blessing, given the creation mandate, and are all equally in Christ. That man and woman equality is also entailed in mutual submission, in marriage, in oneness in the body of Christ, in the priesthood of all believers, in liberty in Christ, in the new creation, in inaugurated eschatology that the kingdom is coming to be now. The Spirit gifts all for ministry. The nature of church leadership as service applies equally to men and women. There is no male-female division in Christ. Male and female are not separate in the Lord, and God shows no favoritism. I set out 44 years ago to prove the Bible limits the ministry of women. My study of the text of the Bible itself forced me to abandon the complementarian idea that women must not teach or have authority over men in the church. The Bible nowhere clearly teaches this. Instead, it clearly teaches the equal standing of man and woman in church and in marriage. And it repudiates male-female division in the church as contrary to the gospel. Paul, in fact, is the best documented advocate of the equality of man and woman of anyone from the ancient Greek world. I conclude, the Bible provides a solid foundation for affirming women and gender studies. Therefore, women and gender studies should be important in a Christian university. Indeed, a Christian university is uniquely qualified, uniquely well qualified, to foster women's and gender studies. May the Lord bless you as you live in light of God's freeing word.
Thank you so much, uh, Phil. Thank you, Dr. Payne, for this wonderful presentation. You see, it took about 40 years to Dr. Payne to come to these conclusions. Yes, it's sometimes a long way to go, but it's really worthwhile to go that way. And you have the privilege, perhaps not, to wait as long as that. <laughs> you can just go back to uh, all the arguments that Dr. Payne uh, laid yeah. forward before you, and it also helps you to see, well, perhaps I should change the way I read my Bible. Very often students say to me in my class, you know, Dr. Heller, that's not written in the Bible, and yes. I always respond, well, read your Bible better. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, you may have discovered things that, uh, well, you didn't think they were in the Bible, but they are in the Bible, and that's great. So when all the people who want to leave uh, before the discussion starts uh, are out, then we will perhaps get into the part where we can ask some questions to um, Dr. Payne.